0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, and in a few moments we'll be reading verse 1 to 26, Genesis 11, the whole of the chapter. Next week we come to Genesis 12, to Abraham. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we come to God's word. Almighty God, I pray that you would give me help, for I am weak. We are prone to wander, we're tempted by the world. So give us humble hearts, give us listening ears, be kind enough to rebuke us, be merciful enough to forgive, and strong enough to change us, we ask in the mighty name, the beautiful name of Jesus, our Saviour, Amen. So we come to Genesis 11, and we won't actually read all the way through to the chapter because that leads to Abraham in chapter 12. But if you know Genesis, chapters 1 to 11 cover many years in creation through the generations. And once we get to chapter 12, we'll slow down and we just look at three generations, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and then Jacob's children. But we come to this familiar story, Genesis 11, into another genealogy, and then we'll see how they all connect. So it's Genesis 11, 1-26, to the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. And burned them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there from over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Shem's descendants. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood, And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived thirty years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Eva had lived 34 years he fathered Peleg and Eva lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years he fathered Rue and Peleg lived after he had fathered Rue 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Rue had lived 32 years he fathered Serug, and Rue lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serech had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Serech lived after he had fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The story of the Tower of Babel is probably familiar to most of us. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard about it since you were a wee little boy or girl. You maybe even have drawn pictures of it. And and if you even if you're not from a church background, you've probably heard something about the Tower of Babel. And on the face of it, it looks rather like a straightforward story. The people on earth came together to build a giant tower. The Lord does not like it, so he mixes up their languages and scatters them across the earth. Simple. Well, not so fast. As we have seen and continue to see in Genesis, almost every episode, no matter how familiar, has various layers to it. And I, I, I was a bit puzzled or a bit struggling to, un- to think about how to uh, put this together so I wanted to think about it in four expanding circles I hope that's clear we'll come clear and we'll look at the story itself so that's the story itself that's the inner circle then we'll go out one concentric circle and we'll look about the story about Babel and chapter 11 how does it relate to chapter 10 and 12 and then one more circle a third circle Um, I'm going to resist having a chart behind me. This is the third circle. How does chapter 11 fit in with Genesis 1 to 11? So first of all, the story itself and how it fits in with the surrounding chapters. How how does it fit in with Genesis 1 to 11? And the last circle, how does the Tower of Babel fit in with the storyline of Scripture? So sort of building out. So the story itself, verse 1. Now the earth had one language and the same words. Some scholars say that this is a lingua franca, that they had different dialects, but there was one common language so they could all use to communicate. That may be the case, though on the face of it, it seems they simply spoke the same language. And that is about to change. Then verse 2: As people migrated from the east, and that reference should send send your senses tingling. Because where else have we encountered the east in Genesis? Well, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. There was a flaming sword and a cherubim placed on the east side of Eden. Cain, in chapter 4, verse 16, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled east of Eden. Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot, their possessions are too great... And Abraham gives it to Lot to choose the land. Lot chooses poorly, Lot went to the east, to Sodom and Gomorrah. So it, it's, it, it's, it's, it, in that way, it's symbolic. When Genesis, when people settled in the east, they leave, it's, a, it's, it's saying that they're leaving the presence of the Lord and moving out from under the blessing of the Lord. It's got nothing to do, you know, we're saying that they went east, but it's it's saying that they left the protection of the Lord. You see, west from the geography of Canaan is the Mediterranean. So the world as they knew it would be to the east. So there is a directional theme In, in Genesis that when you went east, you were leaving the place of God's shelter, blessing and presence. So you should already go, Ha, huh? something isn't quite right. This isn't going to end well. So we look at the people moving to the east. Verse 3. Then they said, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. The whole story, if you look at in the Hebrew, is filled with literary technique. It really is very, quite fascinating. When it says, let us make bricks, you, can tr- you could translate it literally as let us brick bricks. And burn them thoroughly is fire fire. And bitumen for mortar is tar for tar. That's the literally in, in, in the, the actual Hebrew. Let us make bricks is brick bricks. Let us burn them thoroughly is fire fire. Bitumen for mortar is tar tar. So there's wordplay. Some have theological significance. So we come to verse 4. We've got this new technology, this capability to build. And what do they do with this new technology? Let us go and make a name for ourselves. So the motivation here is vain glory. Vain glory has a public dimension to it. It is not enough to feel that you're better... Than everyone else. You want people to recognise. How much better you are. Which is. I see it all the time in today's culture. Today's cancel culture. Is that it's not enough. To to not say something. You have to publicly affirm. Certain things. To be acceptable. It's not enough to be silent. And and here. Vain glory is that the world. Must recognise must recognise how great they are. So there's a public manifestation to vain glory. So here they say we have this great discovery, we have bricks. Let us put this newfound skill, this newfound technology to use. Let us build a city and a tower. Not that cities and towers are wrong in themselves, but vain glorious sin. When we desire the wrong thing, or here, desire, desire the right thing in a wrong way. Either desiring it too much or desiring it for the wrong reasons. And notice in verse 4, this will not be the last time that mankind will be spurred on by seemingly two opposite impulses. See, on the one hand, they have a desire for greatness. Let us make a name for ourselves. So you would think that they're super, uber confident. But at the same time, they're plagued with insecurity. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And isn't that still true in our hearts, in the human heart? What often motiv- motivates us or People, I want to be great. But then there's an nagging fear. What if I'm not? What if I fail? What if all is lost? What if we're scattered and dispersed? So they come together, these complementary yet conflicting desires for greatness and at the same time, insecurity. So they say, let's build a ziggurat, which is a big square and a smaller square, and it goes up in a pyramid-like fashion, to build all the way up into the heavens. They wanted to build all the way up to God, and that's always the essence of false religion. The desire to make a name for ourselves and believe that with our own effort we can find our way to God. And Christian faith is, no, we can't. We have to. we're cast on God's mercy for him to come to us. I, so they're saying, I think we can get there. I think we can get to heaven. And then we come to verse five, which is the turning point in the story where we shift from man's plot. ...to God's response. Because you all enjoyed so much the last time I did a chiasm... ...you remember the 7.7.140... ...I'll just show you another little one here. And the chiasm is named after the Greek letter which we write like an X. So if you picture an X... ...you've got a funnel going down... ...and then a funnel going out... ...X... ...and the centre of the X is the spot. So that's, that's actually chiastic structure... We have a part of the story at the bot- top, you have a part of the story at the bottom, and where they meet is the point. The first half is reflected as a mirror image in reverse order in the second half. We have the same thing in Genesis 11. If you look at Genesis 11, verse 1 and verse 9, you see this chiasm. And if you're interested, I'll send it to you by email. Verse 1. The whole earth had one language. Verse 9. The Lord confused the language of all the earth. So man's plot is one language. So from the top, verse 2, we're coming down from the top. The people found the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. From the bottom, if you like, verse 8, so we're going from 9 to 8, God's response. So the Lord dispersed them from there. They wanted to settle. God scattered. And then from the top, verse 3, Come let us make bricks, man's plot. From the bottom, God's response is verse 7. Come let us go down and confuse their language. Moving down, verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves moving up verse 6 and the lord said behold they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do therefore we scatter them and confuse them so from the top from the bottom the mid the middle the literal and the thematic center of the story the point of the story is verse 5 and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So if you think about an X, 1 to 9 5 is the middle and the point. So what are they doing? They're building a tower to reach the heavens. God had to come down to see it. And I want you to say this this is not a statement about the smallness of God but about the weakness of man. It's meant to be humorous, ironic, it's a technique. They thought their accomplishment was great. Something to brag about. God says, what are they doing down there? They've got a little tower. Let us come down. Just as if you were to look down and see busy little ants making a little tower. To see what the ants were up to, you would have to get on your knees get a magnifying glass like Sherlock Holmes to see what they were doing. It's a tiny little thing. The Lord has to come down to see what they are doing. It's a technique. The most impressive achievements of man done from a human heart of pride are pathetic, minuscular accomplishments in the eyes of God. I look around sometimes and I think of, you see people, they think they're so clever, don't they? They think that they're so clever in putting people down. They think that they're so clever in building certain things. They think that they're so clever in writing the world and it is like a scrap of dust in the eyes of God. God will never be thwarted in his divine plan. Now the Lord God is a good father. To his children. And he does look down on our meager efforts as his children, done in faith, with sincerity of obedience. And even though they're imperfect, he smiles on them. But you can have the grandest accomplishments. You can be the President of the United States of America. You can win the Nobel Peace Prize. You can discover a vaccine for COVID. You can build a skyscraper in the Emirates. You can have the best scores at school. You can run the fastest 100 metres. You can be the best. You can be the brightest. You can be the most beautiful. You can have the most followers on social media. You can be the most athletic. And if your accomplishments are done from a heart of pride, the Lord God is not impressed. God is not in a position to worry. He's not scared about man. He says, it is a little tower. Let us come down and see it. They come together. The whole moon is meant to be of well-deserved scorn. And now the script has flipped from man's plot, from man thinking, we've done it, we've arrived, to God's response. And every single item that man sets out to do has become a complete failure. They started with one language. They ended with many languages. They did not want to be dispersed. They are dispersed. They wanted to build a great city. The building, the city is left unfinished. They want to prove that they are nigh unto God. And they end up utterly routed. By the one and only true God. Make no mistake. God can easily topple the best laid plans of mice and men. They say, verse 4, let us come. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower. God says, let us come down and confuse it. They say, let us build bricks. God says, let us confound. They do not want to be scattered. And how do things end up? They are scattered. Let us make a name for ourselves. That is ironic. The Lord says yes. You want a name for yourself? How about Babel? That wasn't the name they wanted, it's the name they got. We know in English that the word babble means unintelligent speech or communication. I often find myself babbling. But that isn't an English pun here. But there is a play on words in Hebrews because the Hebrew word for confused is balal. Balal. So they shall be called Babel, which sounds like Belal, the place of confusion. God does not just topple the tower. That could have been remedied. Just as if you try to go back to that really helpful illustration of the anthill. If you scrape away an anthill like that, they will get busy and they'll build it up as soon as your back's turned. God says, no, we're going to deconstruct their power. The oldest name for Babylon outside the Bible is translated Gate of God, which is what Babylon thought of itself, the city of splendour, the Gate of God. But it isn't the way to God, and it isn't the way to impress God either. Psalm 2 had the Tower of Babel in mind. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. Together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord isn't frightened by our plans. He isn't anxious. The Lord, God, can topple man's greatest talents. He sits in the heavens. He looks at our proud plans and schemes and laughs. And I actually take great comfort from that. Lest we look at the world and think, alas, all is lost. God is greater. So the second circle, how this story in chapter 11 relates to 10 and 12. You may think, well, how do these fit together? We have In chapter 10, you have a lot, yeah, we have a long, long, long list of names and nations and place. We have the Tower of Babel. Well, chapter 10, as I said last time, but I just wanted to reiterate it, is the ethno-geographic explanation of the people spread across the earth. And chapter 11 is the theological explanation. Their scattering was what they were supposed to do from the beginning. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But they didn't. And now is their punishment. God has a way to get the people to spread out. If you see how chapter 11 ends, Shem, the chosen nine. If you went down to Terah, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham. This is where these chapters come together in Abraham, who will be the father of many nations. That is why Genesis 10 and 11 are in the Bible together. Genesis 10 is the Lord, Yahweh, is God over the nations. Genesis 11 is that he can thwart the plans of the nations. And Genesis 12 is God has a plan to redeem the nations. So I want you to hold all three together. 10, God is Yahweh. He's God of the nations. Chapter 11, God has a plan to thwart the plans of the nations. Chapter 12, God has a plan to redeem the nations. There, there was a world of people before the call of Abraham, and it is that map of peoples that concerns the God of Abraham. Ultimately, out of concern for the salvation of the nations, God calls Abraham and his posterity. If you look at Genesis eleven verse twenty-six, you should by now be looking for these numbers, paying attention to numbers. Verse twenty-six of chapter eleven, when Terah had lived. 70 years, he fathered of Abraham, Nahor and Haran. I think this is very intentional because you can search the rest of Genesis and do the maths. And Abraham actually was not the firstborn of Terah like Shem, Ham and Japheth was not the birth order. Abraham was born some years later but it marks out that Terah began to have his offspring at 70 because once again the connection of the 70 nations the man in the 70th year who has a child. One of whom, Abraham, would be the one to bring back the 70 nations of the earth. We must never think that the church is some mystery parenthesis in God's design. God's plan has always been for the nations. And yes, he accomplishes that plan through his people Israel. But if you notice in the first chapter of the first 11 chapters, there is nothing about Israel. We're now getting to the grandfather of Israel. This was the scriptures for the Hebrew people. You might have expected before this, they might have heard something about Israel. But even though God's plan is going to focus for thousands of years on Israel, his plan was never merely for Israel. Isaiah 49 verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. From the beginning, the plan was for Christ. To be a cosmic Christ, for God to create and have sovereign sway and to save some from every nation. Chapters 10 and 11 are connected. Because God will say to Abraham, all the peoples will be blessed through you. He isn't leaving behind the seventy nations of chapter 10. And even though they are punished in chapter 11, God chooses Abraham as a way to bring them back. Third circle. How does the story fit in with Genesis 1 to 11? As I said earlier, these 11 chapters are a kind of unit of Primeval history before we focus on the patriarchs and their family. What we see from chapter 3 on is the steady flow of man's depravity and you can think of Babel as the literal high point into the clouds of man's rebellion. Derek Kindler said in his commentary the primeval history reaches its fruitless climax as man, conscious of new abilities, prepares to glorify and fortify himself by collective efforts. The elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement. At the same time, they betray their insecurity as a crowd together to preserve their identity, control their fortune. Chapter 11 is the high point of man's rebellion. And in some ways it's the sin that we can relate to most easily. You know, it's easy to read Cain and to say, I'm not a murderer. I don't even have a gun. Lamech's revenge and polygamy. Well, I would never do that. Noah's debauchery. I'm never going to be found Passed out drunk, naked in my tent. Hands disrespect. No, more than all of these sins, the sin of Babel is one that we can relate to. Because we know in our hearts a desire to be great. And at the same time, the fear that we aren't. We have grandiose plans. Someone may say, I don't really want to change the world. But if you're honest, you want to be great in your own field. Your own school. A great name among my own friends. If you write a great book or a great pastor, that seems to be like my thing. But there are all sorts of sin in your heart. We have these plans to somehow achieve greatness and we see it in Babel. We've seen it in Genesis. With each story after the fall, there is a dark stain of sin. But every time there's a glimmer of hope, There is the sin in the garden, but they get a covering. Cain's rebellion, he gets a mark to protect him. Chapter 5, the list of ten men. They all died and died and died and died. But there's one who seeks comfort. Noah, maybe something good has happened. The flood wipes everyone out, but there's a rainbow in the sky. Noah's family sins, but there is blessing for Shem. There is hope for Jacob. Futility of Babel. They wanted a tower. They wanted a name. They got neither. But there is still the line of Shem. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. Ten generations from Shem to who? Abraham. If you think of the hundreds of thousands of years, however long it was, these 20 generations at the beginning, and the most significant thing that has happened is we've made it from Adam to Abraham. And even though no one in the world would have known what was happening, he was a man from the Chaldeans. He was a follower of other religions. And God chooses Abraham. And says, I want you to go to the promised land and from you, the whole plan is going to unfold. No one knew it. No one could see it. And even now, let us not be so confident that we know exactly what God is doing in the world. He's doing 10,000 things, more than that, outside of our sight, outside of our own imagination. He absolutely is. And we will see, because at the moment all we can see is coronavirus horror, horror. But God has a plan and he's doing 10,000 things that we can't see or imagine. So by the time we get to Genesis 11, we're moving toward the blessing. Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, 10 people, 10 person genealogies are so very similar. They live this many years, they have sons and daughters, but notice a big difference. Big difference. In Genesis 5, it mentions after each one, he died and he died. No mention of that in Genesis 11. It isn't because they didn't die, but the accent, the point is now not on the curse of death, but on moving towards the blessing that will come through Abraham and through Abraham's seed. And there's one other wordplay to notice with the line of Shem. The people at Babel want to make a great name for themselves on the earth. Do you know what the Hebrew word for name? It is Shem. We want to make a Shem for ourselves in the world And the Lord says it does not work that way. You do not have your own glory seeking, making a shem for yourself. I have chosen. I already have a shem in the world and the glory will come through him. I have a chosen one. I have a chosen people. And through this shem, my shem, will be the blessings for the whole of mankind. And the last circle. How does the Tower of Babel fit in with the storyline of Scripture? God gives this great gift of language. We do not often think about what a gift it is to communicate with known language. Um, I, I, I was reminded only this week because I'd forgotten, isn't it, that Torpenhow is trapenna? Who would have thought that? It makes no sense, does not it, but... The gift of languages that we can understand Cumbrian. But God creates by language. He says, let there be light. And there was light. Adam used language to name his wife and the animals. God uses language to reveal truth. People connect to each other at the deepest level with words. But we see from the beginning, language abused. The snake in the garden... Here at Babel, the purpose is frustrated. Think of how much pain and difficulty came into the world at Babel. Think about your French classes. Your Spanish classes. Your German classes. Your Hebrew classes. Your Latin. Try learning English. It's the worst. Because nothing is regular in our language. At least German, it's kind of regular. But There's nothing regular in English. No, it was a safeguard against greater evil and it was a punishment because in the Bible's view when people of the earth all come together for one purpose probably something bad is going to happen. So how will God bring the people back added across the earth confused and scattered in language? Well I said at the very outset of this series on Genesis the Bible is about four things. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. We get creation in two chapters. We get the fall and the outworking of the fall in Genesis 3 to 11. And at the very end of, of the Bible, the last two chapters it is about new creation, and the rest of the Bible from Genesis 12 to right near the end of Revelation is about redemption. And God is about his work of redemption. He is reversing the curse. God has a plan. God has a plan to gather a great people for himself. And how will he do it? Zephaniah 3 verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And serve him with one accord. From before, beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you will not be put to shame, because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. That was the Lord's promise. He was saying to the prophet Zephaniah, a day is coming when I will give you one speech, and you will speak with one voice, And those that have been scattered at Babel will be brought near to my holy mountain. I don't know if you ever thought about what is profound happening with the Magi. The three wise men. The pagan astrologers. They came from the east. An echo of Genesis. And finally we have the peoples outside of the blessing. Far from the presence of the Lord. They are very much east of Eden. But here they come. They came not fully even knowing what they're doing. They came with gifts to worship the Christ child. And out of the many scattered, confused peoples, God will make one new people obedient to him. So we see in this unravelling of Babel the reversal of the curse. Most vainly at Pentecost, where the people weren't exactly given one language, but they heard the miraculous hearing of the great news of God. In their own tongue. God is undoing the destructive work of Babel. He's bringing them together in the church. He's bringing... His redeemed together in the church. And though we are divided by nationality and people and language and geography. We together speak the language of worship to Christ. So finally at the end of the age... The only unity that really matters is the diversity that finds unity which leads to doxology. is re-established around the throne where nations and tribes and peoples and tongues can sing together. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne... And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They still have their language, they still have their ethnic identity. It is not as in heaven you do not see colour. They're wearing the same thing because they're washed in the same blood. And they're holding palm branches and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. May the Lord bless the word. God is doing a wonderful thing in the church. I trust it encourages your heart today to be part of the redeemed. Singing worship to our almighty God. Amen.